proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Paul Ken, one of your hosts, and with me is my co-host and bat cousin, Sean M. Myers. How are you this month, Sean? I am great. Our cousins brought the best food items to the reunion this month. Cousin Kevin brought those fantastic Malona bars from Costco. They're so delicious and creamy. And cousin Melissa made a frozen Oreo ice cream pie. Yum, yum. I tell you, Sean, my granny at Julie came by and she made her famous catnip dip. I caramba, yarrar, is that spicy. It goes great with chips and a cold root beer. You want to tell the folks at home about the show, Sean? Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978 and then rescued detective comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints, before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even Roy Raymond, TV detective, and the Odd Man. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman family reunion. Let's get to the story. So this month, we're talking about Batman Family number eight. It was released on August 26th, 1976, with a cover date of November slash December 1976. 48 pages for 50 cents, the same as it has been the last couple months. Three stories, one new, which we'll get into in a minute, and two reprints. And the cover artist, again, is Ernie Chua or Chan. Sean, what do you think of this cover? I think it's good, okay-ish good. I love the main image of Robin using his batarang and capturing cat girl's feet and like she's stopping short her cat of nine tails are wrapped around robin so that's really good there's absolutely no background whatsoever yeah none it is a box and my cousins know what i feel about the box now i do kind of like the figures on the side of that girl and the spinner i think that they're cute the cover copy is all along the side saying starring robin in his first novel length solo adventure then a little bat insignia and then also Batgirl's last case and her figure and then the bat insignia and then villain of the issue, the spinner, and then the spinner. And I like that it looks like the spinner is standing on top of the UPC box. Yeah, that's cool. I did like that. That's cute. They're starting to get used to using that. They're knowing it's going to be there. I'm not a fan of Robin's face in the cover image. I like the cover of the cat girl. I think is pretty good, but his face is kind of, I don't know. I'm not a fan of how his face looks in that one. Kind of looks like he's struggling more than he really should be just for yeah wrapping wrapping it around the legs. Yeah. I mean, Catgirl looks great. You get a lot of leg on the cover. It was really interesting to me, and we'll get into this in the story a little bit. When we had Catwoman and Catgirl, you could tell them apart. They're wearing exactly the same outfit. And it took me like some of my second reading to realize that Catgirl had a ponytail. Yeah. And that made her look younger. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing that's odd about the cover, when you actually have the physical comic book in your hand, the background is kind of like a Hershey's chocolate cocoa brown. But if you look on the DC Universe app, it's like blazing red. And then the other thing too is all the cover copy on the side, it literally looks like cut and paste. (laughs) This black blob around starring and then Robin is just there and then this black blob. Somebody didn't want to retypeset it, I guess. Yeah, it's really... (laughs) The DC Universe app is great because when you're at work and trying to write synopsises, you can pull it up. But sometimes the art looks great and then other times it just looks horrible. And it it does look horrible on, on the app. Yeah, the only other thing I noticed that we lost this issue is the banner across the top. This is giant. The Batman family logo is actually a little bigger. And the box itself is a little bigger. 
that's an improvement on the one hand, although I think we all love those banners from DC Comics on the top, whether they were 100 page super spectaculars or giants or dollar comics or whatever. We all like those banners because that's what we would see peeking out at us on the spinner rack. But we did lose it and it probably does help the art a bit. She is sort of popping out of the box. It's not my favorite cover of the series, but it does the job. I agree. This is what the story is going to be about. And we will post the image of the cover as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Paul. Remind our listeners where that is. That's fireandwaterpodcast.com and look for Batman Family Reunion. Post your comment. Let's jump into that first story, Sean. Our first story is the Copycat Girl Capers, starring Robin. It's 17 pages. The writer is Bob Rosakis. The penciler is Irv Novik. The inker is Vince Coletta. And it was later reprinted three times in the Teen Titans Bronze Age Omnibus hardcover from 2017. Batman Arkham joker's daughter trade paperback from 2018 and robin the bronze age omnibus from 2020 robin in the copy cat girl capers our splash page features the cat o nine tales of cat girl as she ensnares robin while a ghostly image of the character's parental figures floats between them our story proper begins in chem 101 but before the prof can show you how to emulate walter white Catgirl barges in and causes a catastrophe, then quickly splits the scene. Her antics make copy in the Gotham Gazette, and then is probably picked up by the Moscow Bugle as well, which tips off Catwoman that someone is infringing on her cat right, I mean copyright. Catgirl next appears at the television studio CATV, probably to steal the station's master copies of Felix the Cat and Top Cat, but attacks Robin instead, and then High tails it out of there. When Dick returns to his room, he gets a call from Gotham's top dog, Bruce Wayne, Batman. After mentioning Catgirl and Catwoman, Dick can hear some confusion and scuffling, and the line goes dead. Intending to jet to Gotham, I'm imagining on Southwest Airlines, like last issue, Robin has to contend with Catgirl, who is taking the C, A, and T from the New Carthage sign. In our discussion in a bit, I'll tell you, Bat Cousins, about how I did something kind of, sort of similar. I can imagine you in a cat girl costume. (laughs) Once Robin touches down in Gotham, he spends all night nabbing the muggers, junkies, number runners, hired guns, cryptocurrency dealers, all manner of nefarious criminals, but gets no information. I can't help but think if Dick would have created a criminal persona along the lines of Matches Malone, he'd have gotten the details in about an hour or so. But instead, he gets info from Commissioner Gordon. Their tete-a-tete is interrupted by news of Catgirl's latest stunt at the Gotham airport. Also getting this information is Catwoman, who the news has misidentified as the cat prick. I mean, I mean the, the catapult. Oh, I'll stop with the forced puns. It's the culprit. After talking to the security officer who walked into Bruce's office, Dick has the case pretty much figured out, but we still have to fill six pages to make this Robin's first full-length solo story. So he heads to the Kit Kat Club to see Sally Bowles, but instead finds Catgirl, Catwoman, and Batman. They tumble and tussle, throw batarangs and catnip, dance, get smooched, and find out that Catgirl is actually the Joker's daughter a character with a completely different jawline. (laughs) After discussing the case for two panels, Dick realizes that he completely forgot to check in with Lori. And after she proposes a home-cooked dinner, 
he remembers that he's got to take yet another flight, one Southwest. Paul, what did you think of the story? I really like this story. The art is good throughout. It advances the overall storyline of the Joker's daughter, but keeps us guessing at her motives. By the end, you finally get the idea like, whoa, Bob Rosakis is setting something up with the reveal that Catgirl is Joker's daughter. I remember when I was a kid even thinking that's cool. What is she after? We still haven't figured out what she's after. She doesn't really steal anything. She's stealing signs off of airport things. She's just causing mischief. I love all that. So how about you? What I really like about the story is it's really little different sections. When you talk about movies, you talk about like action set pieces. This really is from action, from action, from action. Like it starts off in the classroom. She causes commotion there. It's at the Mm -hmm. TV studio. She causes commotion there. And even when Dick is on the phone, there's a little bit of intrigue there. Then he races to the airport and Kekaroy is there. Then he's on the streets of Gotham. <laughs> then he's with Commissioner Gordon. And that's a little bit more story and exposition. They pack a lot in those 17. I mean, Bob Rosakis, these Bronze Age writers in general know how to pack a lot of story into short comics. It is hard for me to believe because they say like, at long last, in full length solo action for the first time, Robin the Teen Wonder. And it is like an 18 page story. It's just so hard for me to believe that this is the first longest story he's been in. Well, I mean, Robin was always the sidekick. It wasn't until this time when he started having his own adventures. And obviously Marv Wolfman took that and ran with it. But all those stories, which we've talked about before that he had, I and mean, Robin had a lot of stories in Star Spangled Comics, the backup, which are super fun. Like I said, we read, read those archives, but I mean, they've tried to write them out, right? And when they sent him to college, but then they realized, oh, that's a good setting for stories. Do you have a favorite cape? of Catgirl. The first sequence that you talk about is in the lab. Mm -hmm. And what I think is hysterical is the second panel. Dick is like totally not paying attention to the lecture. He's got only eyes for Lori. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just look at the two of them looking at each other. Neither one of them is looking at the teacher. (laughs) He's been through all this training with Bruce and Batman. He's like, I don't need all this. I know how this chemistry stuff. And so this got me wondering, does she know that Dick is Robin? What's up with that, right? So that's part of the mystery because she's disrupting a particular class. I mean, at Hudson University, how many classes, hundreds of classes probably going on at any one time, right? I have a question for you. So when Chief McDonald comes in, Lori calls him Uncle Frank and Dick is right next to her. So he must know. I still haven't figured out this idea that he doesn't know that Chief McDonald's is Lori's uncle. I think the only time that was referenced was in like the text piece. I don't remember them bringing it up in story points at all. You know, he comes in and okay, Uncle Frank. And there's no like shocked look on Dick's face. No, no. When then after that, she goes to the TV studio. You must love the gimmicks. I love gimmicks. I'm disappointed she's not pulling it out of a file folder purse on her hip (laughs) because that's my favorite but I do like all of the gimmicks that she has. Yeah the catnip and he's like youch that catnip is really biting me. She has set up a big cat's cradle. (laughs) That was cool that might be my favorite and she's laughing ha 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 maybe that's a little clue that she's Joker's daughter. And we didn't see it but Probably the way she ran through it was how in the 90s movies, characters would go through like the red laser beams just by doing splits and turns. And she, and she knew the exact pattern. She's been practicing yeah. this for yeah, months. Exactly. Yeah. The way he's all tangled up is pretty funny in the, in the bottom of that page. It's pretty funny. I do think that's neat. And yeah. she's dying to unmask him. So she doesn't know who he is. Now that's another clue. So readers, pay attention to that. Then it moves on to the real mystery of the story kind of starts on, on this page where Robin's on the phone And he knows he's talking to Bruce, but he doesn't, at this point, he doesn't know if he's talking to Bruce's Bruce Wayne or is he dressed up as Batman. 
And then, you know, there's a scuffle, there's a sound, and then the line goes dead. So what happened? We don't see Bruce. He's in, he's in shadow. shadow. Yes, we don't see him. And I love how she just happens to be then at the airport, <laughs> taking the CAT off the sign. <laughs> <laughs> so Cousins, I have a story to tell you. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear your story now. It's definitely not as bad or mischievous at all as taking signs off of a building. But I used to work at a movie theater. So you think this is going to the marquee? And it is, but it isn't. At the theater I worked at, it was a little four theater, fourplex. Every Thursday, I would have to go down with kind of this huge, long, mega selfie stick that had a suction cup at the end. We changed the letters. Yes. And at that point, the marquee was all flat letters that you would slide in. And sometimes it was easy, but most times it was hard. But that theater, we owned the downtown theater in Hanover, which had been closed down for years and years and years. And that was a real old time theater. The box office was out on the sidewalk in a little half rounded thing. And it was huge inside, like a huge lobby, stairways, but it was all decrepit and run down. The manager at the time, Brent Shear, who was a close personal friend and another friend of ours, Beth, we went in one day and it was neat and spooky and, and cool. But their theater had the old time letters, the dimensional letters, which were red and black that sat outside on their huge marquee. We found where the letters were kept. So I took the S and the M for Sean Myers from there. And it was theater property, which wasn't being used anymore. So it was fine, I guess, <laughs> to take off. And also too, I was a huge fan of Mary Tyler Moore. And Mary Tyler Moore had the M in her apartment. Mm. So like my SM marquee letters were reminiscent of Mary Tyler Very Moore. Cool. <laughs> now, luckily, I got away with the letters. No one came up and strung me up by a rope. Like, yeah. yeah. Robin makes very quick work of her. I think this is hysterical. He just totally dismisses her, makes quick work of her, leaves her literally hanging. <laughs> He's a man on a mission. He has to find out what's going on with Bruce. So he jets off to Gotham City. Well, before you go on, they call Gotham City twice in this story, very explicitly, the Big Apple. Yeah, I hate that. I hate that too. <laughs> I, I don't like that either. So he jets off to Gotham and then we get a really cool page. Irv Novick really did a great yeah. job. Now, I'm not super crazy about his that signal because there's like 14 extra bat points. Yeah, <laughs> something's off with the bat signal, yeah. But these next couple panels are quote unquote wordless. You get voiceover, but you're seeing like all these different crimes happen. And then Robin come up and stopping them and foiling them. And then you see him almost flash running. Irv Novick was known for flash. You yeah. almost see him flash running out of the Batmobile because like yeah. these little after images. Yeah. So he yeah. punches the guy. Yeah, it was a very flash-like image. That was cool. After his night of crime busting, he doesn't get any information. He talks to Alfred. And here it's revealed. I don't know if I'm looking for Bruce Wayne. Am I looking for Batman? What's going on? Then he gets a clue when he talks to the police officer. But we have to talk about Catgirl's next mischief, which is stealing... Catsup. <laughs> Pronunciation guide time. <laughs> Do you know people who call ketchup catsup? Not really. My great grandmother, I believe, used to call it. My impression of it is that it's a really old word. I looked it up and apparently it's still, you know, a legitimate word, but I didn't know if that was a regional thing or what. When Heinz really started making lots of ketchup, prior to that, Ketchup was a much more generic term for some sort of garnish or relish. If you look, even today on the bottle, it says tomato ketchup. Oh. Apparently it was made from other stuff too back in the day. So are any 
catsup slash ketchup experts in the bat family, <laughs> given that we have to have plenty of condiments when people come over to the reunion, please let us know in the comments. This one combines both food and pronunciation, so that should be popular <laughs> with our listeners. Yes, it should, yes. Catwoman getting annoyed. I love Catwoman when she's annoyed. It does bring up the intellectual property laws of criminals. <laughs> I think in a fair amount of stories, you do have a criminal who will adopt another criminal's M.O. to throw Batman off. There's probably like Riddler stories where he's stealing birds or something like that to make him think it's Penguin. So, so that's kind of interesting. That's a turn. I always like the stories where the villains fight amongst themselves. I never buy it when there's too many of them teaming up. One of the reasons we like secret society supervillains, they were always arguing. They were worse than the Huntress and Sportsmaster. They were always arguing. Now, you can imagine some of them, like the Flash's rogues, right? They, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I think it's funny when they argue. And then we get another clue about what she's after, the Kit Kat Club. What mischief can I get into here to lure Robin after me? So that's pretty explicit. Something that she's doing to say, hmm, uh, what can I do to get his attention? We still don't know that she's the same character yet. And she walks in on Catwoman's gang. Yeah. And because Catwoman left no uncertain terms about how she felt about Catgirl, they're going to attack her and get rid of her for the boss lady. Yeah, they have to team up. My favorite page is this next one. They have a dance move at the top. They have to team up to beat Catwoman's goons. Robin does a flip. They take out the guys. Catgirl gives Robin a little kiss on the cheek. She starts to go. He's like, wait a minute, you're not going anywhere. He tugs on her cape and poof. <laughs> The mask comes off and it's the Joker's daughter's face on top of the cat girl's body, which is fabulous. Fabulous. Classic. The panel before the Joker's daughter's face, Robin is holding her mask. You can see like there's a whole face, face part, part underneath the mask. <laughs> I love it. I love it. This is my favorite page. This page is definitely going in the gallery. You guys are all love this one. Now we're like, whoa, now what's really going on? So then Batman and Catwoman come up and Joker's daughter disappears. She does a Batman right onto Robin, disappears. <laughs> Batman, you see him. I love how he's also got a disguise on as this night watchman with a mustache and everything. And he's got one of those same kind of masks because Catwoman's ripped his shirt in the exact place where the bat signal is. So we know it's Batman. <laughs> I almost thought Batman's disguise as this person was a Power Girl cosplay. <laughs> But it wasn't. Anyway, we wrap up. We find out, of course, Batman's undercover. Dick has to like, whoa, I better get back and see Lori. She's got a uh, dinner for me. And also for Lizanne's note, Dick is rocking a green vest outfit. So I'm sure yeah. Lizanne oh, will comment about And green pants, yeah. Green pants and green vest outfit at the end of the story. Maybe she's okay with it on Dick. I don't know. <laughs> you get a shot of his butt there. So maybe that makes it okay. Anyway, this was great, especially the ending. Now, did you get, have it on record, number seven was your first comic. Were you able to then immediately pick up number eight? No, I didn't get this for much later. I actually did get a copy of this maybe like a year after. I got it in Lancaster. There is a farmer's market named Roots, which it, it's spelled R-O-O-T-S, which of course Those is Lancasterian Roots. <laughs> But that Pennsylvania Dutch, what they call it, Roots, Roots Auction, the version I had did not have the cover. I wouldn't get the covered copy Ooh. until later, and I'll tell that story. This was a coverless copy, so for the longest time, I did not know what the cover of this looked oh, like. Interesting, interesting. So no, I did have other parts of 
the Joker's daughter saga, mm -hmm. but not this one. I wouldn't get this one until way after Makes that sense. included. Very cool. Well, that was awesome. Anything else on the Robin story? You want to move on? I think I am ready to put my dancing shoes. Those guys were dancing. We might as well put on <laughs> our dancing shoes too. In this segment, we're taking a trip to Gabriel's Horn, the hip happening hangout for the Teen Titans in the 1970s. And we are going to talk about the most 1970s moment in the main Robin story. Paul, what do you have? There's a number of small ones. There's a newspaper again. There's one small one and one big one. <laughs> There's a chalkboard in the classroom. There's two different phones with cords. Yep. There's a wired phone in the Batmobile. Yeah, right. But for me... Before you get to the best one, I'm going to sneak in some more. I think we'll probably have stuff like this every episode where it's newspapers and yeah. magazines. Right. You have the Gotham Gazette and the magazine. But go ahead. And we just talked about it. Pulling the full face mask off... And the impersonation, to me, screams the 70s. Yeah. Batman did it all the time. Poof, all of a sudden, this whole outfit. He somehow squishes down the bat years. <laughs> and then they're never floppy after that. So that's for me, is that mask pull-off was definitely a 70s move. Because she's also got makeup to be the Joker's yeah. daughter, the white yeah. makeup and the green hair. So she put on her Joker's daughter outfit as if she knew she was going to get unmasked. And then put the cat girl outfit with a full face underneath. On top of that, which is fabulous, as we do see her earlier in the story without the cowl of the cat girl on it, when she's getting out of the airport, she's taking off her coat, she's putting on her cowl. Oh, that's right. Yeah. She's got all kinds of Mission Impossible stuff going on here. So that's for me. So did you have a different one? I have the biggest tell that this is from the 70s. And I do mean the biggest because on top of that tv station is a huge satellite dish oh yes that cat girl comes sliding down the edge of the satellite dish right onto robin nice nice <laughs> that's a good one <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. Let's go on to our second story, starring the villain of the issue, The Spinner. The title of this story is The Web of the Spinner, starring Batman, Robin, and Batwoman. Yay. Nine pages written by Bill Finger with art by Sheldon Maldoff, one of our favorites, and inked by Charles Paris. It originally appeared in Batman number 129, 1960, which has a great cover, by the way, of the Batwoman being spun around on the fans. Batman and Robin are after a new criminal mastermind, the Spinner. They are checking all the places with spinning objects, Natch. They actually find him at the cool fan company, making off with the, quote, payroll rhino. What is that? Only ex-cons from the Joliet prison know that it was slang for money. The gang gets away, though, blinding Batman and Robin with a, quote, colored glass impregnated fan, unquote, whatever that is. Meanwhile, Kathy Kane is investigating the Swami Imar for being a swindler of old ladies. She isn't quite sure about him, so she breaks into his office when he's not there to check for clues. She finds a bill of sale to a local farm and heads out to investigate. At the same time, Batman and Robin are facing the spinner again who is using icky, sticky glue to hold up the Gotham Drill Company for their rhino uh, payroll. The spinner gets away once again, this time by using a sprang top. Batman and Robin have to bump and grind the top off the pier using the Batmobile. The spinner left the glove behind, though, and the world's greatest detectives realize that the glove had salted peanut residue on it. So, of course, the spinner must be Peanuts Gilson, the ex-Joliet prison con. The GCPD gets a tip from the Swami that they should head out to the same farm Batwoman is investigating, since the deed is in the name of, you guessed it, Peanuts Gilson. 
they enter the farm and they see Batwoman is being subjected to the spitting G-force of a spraying fan. Batman is able to get into the farm theme and stops the fan with a pitchfork before Kathy hurls. They unmask the spinner as Peanuts Gilson, but Batman is surprised it really is him since he didn't think he was smart enough to be such a super criminal. And Peanuts denies it, saying he was just hired to wear the suit. But if Peanuts is not the spinner and all the clues led them to this farmhouse, everybody get out, yells Batman, and they escape just before the whole place goes boom. Of course, the real spinner is the Swami. Batman and Robin and Batwoman unmask him and he confesses to planning the caper so he could retire with his loot after blaming the whole thing on poor old Peanuts. So what if he was blown up? But the Bat family unspun his web of deceit and sent him off to the slammer. So Sean, did the web of the spinner tilt your windmill? I am spinning around and around and around. (laughs) I thought this story was so great. As you're reading this, you're thinking... Obviously, a lot of times in these stories, the criminals act dumb or aren't even acting in their best interest. And here where Kathy goes to see the Swami and he tells the person where their item is for 10 bucks instead of selling it. Even when I was reading, I'm like, well, that's dumb. Why wouldn't you just steal it? But that is answered in the story. I also love that Kathy is going on, like she's not even doing necessarily that woman work. She's just going undercover to the Swami on her own. And I do like that it's quote unquote, two different stories. Mm -hmm. Obviously you understand, especially for a story at this time, you know, they're going to meet. But if you're a kid, you may not know. If you're a kid, you might realize. For quite a while, his plan was solid. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people say, oh, you know, Riddler or Toy Man have this whole other play dimension. So why don't they just, you know, make money off of that instead of stealing? And then the argument is, well, that's why they're criminals because they're messed up in the head. But he thought of everything. He was going to frame this other guy. He dropped the the language, the lingo. His plan is rock solid. Yeah, That's in my notes too. He has a pretty good plan. I mean, the spinner costume looks stupid. (laughs) However, he is sticking to a theme. You're not getting any signal, man, ambivalent. He is a spit, like he he has a little rotor on the top. I love the little spitty thing he has on his hat, like the caps. (laughs) from that time i think that's a riot too i think he just needs to refine the spinning (laughs) but yeah the costume is horrible (laughs) like i said i love the original cover for this batman 129 fabulous cover with multiple motion images one of my favorites i mean the spinner is kind of a letdown but then i read it i'm like oh wow i I didn't remember the story i'm like this was a pretty fun story we do get batwoman by now in hindsight probably not a coincidence we're running all these batwoman stories you know you got batman family you got batwoman bob rosakis figured he's going to bring her back in a couple of issues, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Going by the beats on that first story page, I love Robin's acrobatics. He does a, like a cartwheel kind of thing and he is spinning. Yeah. Robin's getting into the theme. I think it's funny how Batwoman going out on, on her undercover mission, she's getting dolled up, she's putting her <laughs> lipstick on. <laughs> what else? What do you have in that section? Anything? No? Oh, actually going back a little bit with the uh, Joel impregnated fan. <laughs> I always want that to be the ultimate disco lights. Like that's what it is in my mind. Well, it's blinding them. The secondary one is that girl's light tracer thing, which I don't <laughs> understand the science of. So maybe that, but definitely the hung disco up on lights. That, you know? yeah, you I need know, to yeah. fall into a swamp and figure it out. Know, <laughs> but I just want disco lights coming off of that spinning you can install it in your family room you have a glass impregnated (laughs) spinning fan and you'll have disco in your room all the time and cool at the same time keeping with his theme going to the gotham drill company Mm -hmm. but we get to the best part of of the stuff the gimmicks is the giant top (laughs) 
that's fantastic. I love how the Batmobile just bunking it through town like it's in a pinball machine, you know? Maybe it's a flashboard and pinball machine. I don't know. So that's great. We were talking about criminal intellectual property earlier, and the Flashville in the top could have been in on this. <laughs> They find the salted peanuts. They go to the farm. Batman gets a couple good things here. He throws the pitchfork to stop the fans. And it's Peanuts Gilson in there. And Batman's like, wait, you know what? Why would he do that? And then Batman figures it out. I kind of like that. Many of these stories we've been reading in the 50s, Batman, he's a regular guy, but he doesn't always look super smart. But here, at least he figures it out. So I do like that. So clever overall, the whole gimmick, I thought. And I'll talk about the windmill, which obviously windmills spin. This is the part of the segment where I talk about something not related to Batman family. <laughs> which is my intellectual property MO. Windmills in film. So you have the Hitchcock movie, Foreign Correspondent, which if you haven't seen it, see that because there's a great windmill scene in that. There's the Disney cartoon, The Old Mill. Oh, I don't fantastic. know that one. It's on Disney Plus. The Old Mill? The Old Mill. And it's an Academy Award winning short because of the use of the multiplane camera. I have seen those in the uh, exhibit there. And there's another Disney movie with Haley Mills called The Moon Spinners. And that involves a windmill. So windmills are always a good storytelling. Movie. All right, well, I'm going to watch the old milk. <laughs> All right, well, this was a great story overall. I enjoyed it. But before we leave, I do want to talk about Charles Paris. I personally had seen his name a number of times. I knew he was an inker. Really didn't know anything about him. Actually, it was hard to find it. Not as easy to find some of the information on him as some of the others. He does have a very small Wikipedia page. He's best known for inking Dick Sprang. He, he was inking Sheldon Mondoff in this story and many others as well. But he, he inks Dick Sprang a lot. And there was an interview with Paris and Sprang in Amazing Heroes number 167 from 1989, which Sean helped me track a copy down. Plus, I was able to find additional biographical information and a quote from uh, Batman Archives bio and the intros in Batman Archives number seven and number eight. That's the sources this time. So he was born in 1911, North Carolina. He moved to New York in 1934. He was pretty well educated in art, sort of more fine art. You know, he went to Art Students League, the Grand Central School of Art, the Pratt Institute. So he was pretty well educated as an artist. And for a few years, he worked in New York in theatrical set display and then department store display. But he was kind of part of the artist community in New York. And in 1941, he met a guy named Jack Letty who had a cookout for his art friends. So they're at a cookout, okay? A reunion, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> Jack Letty was the writer-artist of The Crimson Avenger in Detective Comics. And Jack asked him, hey, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm doing department store display. And then he said, would you like to ink comics? He's like, I have no idea how to do that. He says, that's okay, I'll teach you. <laughs> so shortly thereafter, he started inking that series. Simple as that. And apparently he was pretty good at it due to his talent and fine art training. And eventually he gave up his department store display job to work full-time in comics. Letty was in the reserve and got called up to World War II a little while later. And he took Paris in to see Whitney Ellsworth, who's the famous DC editor at the time. And he recommended that Paris replace him while he was in the service. So Ellsworth liked his samples and hired Paris to be full-time work in the bullpen at DC as an inker. Artists, the pencilers would come and go and he would just ink whatever was in front of him. He worked on Detective, continuing on the Crimson Avenger. He had an Airwave, Vigilante, Johnny Quick and others. But it was 1944 before they let him work on Batman and starting with inking Dick Sprang. He inked Sprang on the Batman syndicated strip as well. So here's a quote from Paris that I got from Batman Archive number seven. The only thing Sprang drew that wasn't absolutely perfect was the bat insignia on Batman's chest. Batman's chest emblem should have five points. Dick did not stick to that number and neither did some other guys. I always made sure Batman's bat had the right number of points. So all these people out there who are concerned that Batman's <laughs> insignia had the five points to bottom, you have Charlie Paris to thank for it. In the Amazing Heroes interview, Sprang talks about how he only met Paris once when they were working in New York since he would just come into the office occasionally, 
But Sprang was a big fan. The editors were too. He was known for bringing a consistent look across all the Batman stories because there were a lot of those ghost artists and artists, you know, all the various Bob Kane's of the world. Paris started inking a lot of them. And then there was a great quote from Sprang from the Amazing Heroes article. So Sprang was on a panel at a con and they were talking about the challenges recognizing artists and even their own work since it was all uncredited, especially the stuff from the bullpen that, that he was doing back then. So Sprang says, when Charlie Paris inked my pencils, he enhanced them. I have never seen anything that Charlie Paris inked that I had the slightest negative criticism about, just the opposite. He goes on, when Charlie started inking me before I knew him, I would draw some lines with a double line. The thick part would be the double line. Well, after I saw Charlie's work there, there was no need to instruct the inker that this line was supposed to be full of energy and some variation. Charlie would just put it in. We had a rapport. And Paris replied, Richard, I felt the same way inking your stuff. I did the best job I was capable of. I knew you were doing your best and I just flowed through on your intentions. There was never any doubt about your intentions. And I can't say that about all the pencilists I work for. So the article is great. Two of them go on to compliment Bill Finger and others, you know, and they never even met him. So Paris worked on Batman and related titles until 1964. His last work for DC was inking Ramona Fraden on Metamorpho. So apparently his eyesight was getting too bad for the fine line art of inking comics. So he retired from comics and moved to Arizona in the 1970s. And in his late career, he was a Western artist painter. Horses, and cowboys, stuff like that, making a good living. But in February 1989, the year of the bat, his house in Arizona burned to the ground. All his canvas art, his supplies, everything was destroyed in the fire. The Amazing Heroes interview was conducted not much longer than that because it was the summer of 89 when Batman 89 came out. The interview was conducted in the trailer he was living in at the time. And the Amazing Hero reporter and Dick Sprang went there to meet with him. And they made a point of saying they expected to see him depressed, but that was not the case. He was really upbeat. He was a great host. He died five years later in 1994 at the age of 83 in Arizona. He has 770 story credits in Mike's Amazing World, 8,092 pages, all for DC. I have to assume some of the pages slipped by Mike's from the bullpen days because they didn't always know who inked what. He had a handful of penciled issues, but his career was almost entirely as an inker. Great career. I love when I can find quotes from the people themselves or quotes from their contemporaries about them. These classic stories, we're going to run out of them soon because we're going to get to all new material and another couple issues. So I'm trying to make sure we hit some of these people. Seeing Charlie Paris's name a lot of places, but know a little bit about him, I, I think is, is a lot of fun. Honestly, I don't even recognize that name at all. Okay. Well, he it's in the credits, but I didn't even really pay attention. You ready to move on to the bat branding segment? Absolutely. Let's get to it. Here's where we discuss the notable non-story pages in the issue. And this one has some good ones. So Sean, do you want to get us started? I am going to get us started with a Green Lantern hostess ad where Sid and Marty Croft and Green Lantern team up because Green Lantern meets Dr. Shrinker. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's not Dr. Shrinker, but he has stolen Dr. Shrinker's M.O. and he's shrunken people. And Green Lantern is going up against Dr. Live. And if you spell that backwards, you'll know what trouble that is. So he shrinks Green Lantern. Which Dr. Live has to make sure to tell everyone. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it doesn't make sense at all. It looks like Dr. Savano with a fake beard on him. He shrinks people down and puts them in jars. Luckily, Green Lantern breaks open the jars and the people... They're happy that they've grown, but they're happy that they're grown because when they were little, they couldn't eat Hostess fruit pies. I'm actually not sure if that's so much of a bad thing <laughs> because my history with Hostess fruit pies are not fantastic. I don't necessarily want to get into the psychological implications of a Hostess ad, but if they were smaller, wouldn't a Hostess fruit pie last a whole lot longer? 
you could just bite off, you know, little bits and it would fill you up. I would think if you're shrunken down, it would last a lot longer. I like how he says he has to change his name to Dr. Rizal. I know. (laughs) Spell that backwards. All right. On the next page, we have a pretty cool ad. For a sensational summer, visit the Galaxy of Greatness DC line of superstars. It's a full page ad for Cobra. Okay, which was a new title. The Return of the Teen Titans, Tomorrow's Heroes Today. Dr. Light wants to wipe them out before they can even get their careers started. Detective Comics, for some reason, Commissioner Gordon kidnapped. But the notable thing, don't forget our two new TV series titles debuting this month. A little thing called Super Friends, number one. And Welcome Back, Cotter, number one. This is a cool ad. They don't really have a Super Friends picture. It's a Superman, but there's a shot of Gabe Kaplan. This ad is really neat. There's a lot of goodness for Sean on this page. Oh, yeah. Teen Titans. I loved that run of Teen Titans. That run was my introduction to the Teen Titans. Me too. Me too. Mm -hmm. I understand people who knew and loved the original Teen Titans, how this run probably could have been seen as a disappointment. However, I loved it. I was so sad that it didn't last very long. In a way, maybe it's good it didn't last long because then that paved the way for the new Teen Titans, which was just I like them all. I like pretty much all the incarnations. The new Teen Titans is just one of my favorite series of all time. And it kept me in comics when I was thinking about whether or not I want to stay. I love the old Ginchy Teen Titans. They're fantastic. But this was my first experience with the Teen Titans too. I had those issues when they came out contemporaneous with the Batman family. And there's a reason why these stories that Robin and Batgirl and are in are both in their own omnibuses and the Teen Titans omnibus and all the rest. Bob Rosakis wrote them all. So. And it does give us Gabriel's horn. It does give us Gabriel's <laughs> horn. That's right. And Super Friends, I loved. I loved Super Friends on TV. And then finally, I saw the comic book and got that. At the time, I loved Welcome Back, Cotter. Talking on the playground, up your nose with a rubber hose. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was like the third grade put down. It was such a pop culture phenomenon. And the Detective Comics, the picture of Commissioner Gordon being held hostage with his hand up. It's and, a scary picture. Yeah. And to even the DC line of superstars. That was something that DC always tried to yep. use in their, in their branding. Awesome. Great ad. We'll include that one for sure. The next one we're just going to touch on briefly And that is a Nabisco ad for Sugar Daddy, Sugar Mama, and Sugar Babies. It's all caramel. Popular in the UK, perhaps? Maybe. I do love caramel. I think they still make Sugar Daddy and Sugar Babies. I don't think I've ever recalled Sugar Mama. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember. The difference is Sugar Mama is caramel covered in chalk versus just a caramel bar, which was Sugar Uh Daddy. Okay. But yeah, I've definitely had Sugar Babies and Sugar Daddy. They're so sticky and gooey. (laughs) They were, yeah, you would have it in your teeth and like, (laughs) (laughs) and then you'd have to like wrap it around so it doesn't fall on the ground. And now we're going to move on to Batmail Family, which, of course, is the letters page. And we're inviting Ed Via, Denise Osker, Rich Hango, Ron Fitz, and Scott Gibson. If you're listening to us, please, please, please join the reunion. We would love to hear your thoughts about having your letters in this issue. And I don't know that we're going to specifically talk about one letter or anything, but we are going to talk about the topics and themes of the letter column. Do you want to bring something up, Paul? My favorite part is the end. Bob Rizakis even signs it. He says, in response to our clown princess was so great, it prompted us to follow up in this issue's cat girl caper with a bad girl Robin team up next issue titled Startling Secret of the Devilish Daughters, where the dynamite duo face off the offspring of Scarecrow, Riddler, and Penguin and learn the startling truth of the Joker's daughter. You know, in my head, I have it as this big epic, but it's three stories. (laughs) 
<laughs> Plus, then she's got a bunch of appearances after that. But I don't know. The, the mystery of the Joker's daughter will resolve next issue. So that's good. I think those two things combined. The fact that in the next issue, there are three different characters. When you're thinking back, you think, oh, there was Catgirl. Oh, there was Joker's daughter. Oh, there was Scarecrow. Oh, there was Riddler. Oh, there was Punk. So I think that adds. Maybe you think that they had their own stories or something, but they didn't. They were all part yeah. of the same story. Yeah. Exactly. And the fact that she continued on for a little bit as a character, I think that makes you think it lasted longer. And then a lot of the other responses were about Agatha Christie yep, and her mystery, her death. And luckily, we'll get to a little bit of that in the feedback. A funny quote from Ron Fitz. He said, Robin has dialogue like, smoke clinging to me like Laurie at a drive-in movie. <laughs> really now, if the Teen Titan really equates the two experiences, he has some deep psychological problems. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. And Bob Rosakis's response is fantastic. He said, where there's fire, there's smoke. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to move on to the piece de resistance. And that is the two-page center spread for the CBS Saturday morning. And there's a lot of good, good stuff. At 8 o'clock, you have Sylvester and Tweety. 8.30, the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Hour. 9.30, you have Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle from Filmation. Then throughout the day, you'll have In the News, which was not as good as Schoolhouse Rock, but they were little one-minute, 30-second segments of news. But then at 10 and 10.30, you had the Shazam Isis Hour, and that was phenomenal. Then you had Arc 2 at 11, Clue Club at 11.30, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids at 12.00. Way Out Games, WOG. I remember that. That was live action from 1230. And at one o'clock, the CBS Children's Film Festival with Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. Out of these shows, which ones did you watch? I remember watching the Shazam Isis show. I probably watched the Tarzan show, but I don't recall very much about it. Of course, the Looney Tunes I would watch. I don't remember Clue Club. Looks like a takeoff on Scooby-Doo and Arc 2. I, I don't really recall. Looks kind of like a Lost in Space kind of thing. And did you watch all these? I must have traveled around the dial often a lot because I have seen all of these. And I know that at the time, I would have also watched ABC and NBC. So I guess maybe on the reruns, I caught some of them. Mm. So the Looney Tunes, maybe I didn't watch those in this incarnation. Yeah, I don't know where I saw them. but mm -hmm. Especially because I think Super Friends was still on at 8 o'clock during that hour. The Tarzan, I think I saw later when it was combined with Batman. And was it the Super 7, I think? So that maybe I watched later. But definitely Shazam and Isis, I watched that. Mm -hmm. I know I have seen Arc 2. The thing I remember about Crew Club is the two dogs are Woofer and Tweeter. <laughs> and I remember one of the characters had blue bubble gum. And at the time, there was no such thing as blue bubble gum. So that always either fascinated me or infuriated me. <laughs> <laughs> and Way Out Games, I remember that because it was live action. It was sports, but very funny. Like here, like super huge inflatable feet that the kid has to walk on. So it's almost maybe like a forerunner to uh, like Double Dare. The Nickelodeon stuff. Yeah. 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 The next one we want to talk about is a nice ad almost near the end. An ad where the first third of the page has the secret origins of super dc heroes the, mm -hmm. the book which we talked about last time which is great but the bottom two-thirds of the page is the 1977 super dc calendar in fact you have 365 dates when you get the 1977 calendar only 395 and what's cool is they list all the artists you know neil adams jim aparo ernie chua vince coletta they list all the and they have a lot of them wally wood 
Kurt Sappenberger, Dick Giordano, Mike Grell, Garcia Lopez, Kubert, everybody's on here. I think I had this because it's got a great Neil Adams cover to it with the Justice League and Shazam going up against a bunch of villains who are standing on the Statue of Liberty's tablet, which is a pretty cool image. So I do remember that. I think I might have had this one. I don't have it anymore. The one remaining calendar I have is a, is that Spider-Man one that I told about before. It's funny you say that because as much as I love this ad, it is a little bit infuriating maybe for me now. Because just recently, I was down in my basement through all of my boxes for like another project. And I went through all of my stuff in storage. And I know I have the 76, the 77, and the 78 DC calendars. And the only one I can find now is the 78 calendar with the disasters. And that's nice because it does have the Robin and Batgirl page. But I know I have 76 and 77. And it is not like me to lose things, especially like that. <laughs> so that was bad enough. But so maybe this is kind of bad of me to say. I know that we have a habit of talking about things and then that sends people to eBay. So today I thought, oh, well, I better get on this now before other people start looking on the calendar. The 76 and 77 calendars are not on eBay, at least wow. right now, as of this recording. Wow. I'll, I'll keep looking. I'll keep searching. Like, I don't want to spend too much for it. I know I had both of them. If I'm going to guess who in our little circle has one, I'm going to guess Chris Franklin. Has That's one. what I was going to say too. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to guess. So Chris, let us know if you have it. So basically you want me to break into his house and take it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're down for that. We'll take a road trip down there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The next page we're going to talk about is the Super Friends School Supplies. And this is a fantastic <laughs> ad full of... NCG merchandise goodness. <laughs> you have the Super Friends logo, and underneath that, you have a Captain well, Shazam pencil sharpener, book covers with Superman, Batman, Robin, and Shazam, Captain Marvel. You have a portfolio. I'm not exactly sure. Is that like a folder? A folder. I, I, think, it's a fo I think it's a folder. folder. Yeah. Okay, yeah. You have a theme book, ringed theme book with lined paper with Shazam. You have a three by five notepad with Batman, a pencil case with Aquaman. But the best thing, and I... I was going to say, this is the best thing, too. I want this now. I looked on eBay for this, and this isn't on either. This is the most infuriating episode of Batman Family Reunion I've ever experienced. We haven't even told our listeners what it is yet. There is a ruler with cutout heads of the superheroes, and it's Hawkman, Batgirl, Captain Marvel Shazam, Plastic Man, Batman, Superman, Robin, Flash, Wonder Woman, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, and Aquaman. Oh my gosh, that is a full 12 inches of superhero. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I wonder if it's a real plastic ruler, if it's one of those really flimsy ones, which I could see not surviving. You know, those really flimsy ones you get at the bank or something. Oh, my idea is this is the 70s. It is probably the hardest plastic and probably still exists. Now, I think maybe- the Images of one I don't off. know how, yeah, maybe some of the heroes, especially like the paint or yeah. whatever they used to color it back then, yeah. asbestos or whatever, is probably shipped off. But it's still, depending on the condition, I don't want to say the price I would pay for it because that might check up the Price. But I, think I, I didn't realize you were in such competition it. with all of our listeners, Sean. I, <laughs> did I start a bad thing by buying the belt buckle or what? <laughs> now I'm, I should have even said it because now I think everyone's going to go through every ad page for the next 25 <laughs> issues and steal stuff from out from under. <laughs> and speaking about stuff I would love to have, underneath that is the official DC superhero stamp album. And then all of these collector stamps were in different groups. So you have the Flash, Wonder Woman, Shazam, Supervillain. Remember this one. I saw this live in person when I was a kid once. 
every Christmas, my church youth group would go to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which was like an hour away. The first Saturday of December, we would go on like a Christmas shopping trip. And there was some kind of drugstore. I forget what it was, people's drug or whatever. And I remember seeing them in there and I didn't get them at the time. And even now, I think I have seen these over the years. If I came across them at like a really, I don't know, five bucks, maybe 20 bucks for the whole thing, I would get it maybe. I'd be tempted to use the stamps and just put them on stuff. But (laughs) yeah, so they're not postage stamps. They're just stamps you put into a, it's probably like stock art used in an interesting way so there's that and then underneath that there is the bat copter and i don't want to harsh someone else's joy you know i hope you find your joy but this looks like the cheapest piece of yeah that copter on a stick it looks like it'll work like twice (laughs) (laughs) i I don't know what do you do do? twist the stick and it launches or pull a string or something trying to figure out how that works however if any of our cousins love the bat copter and you have Precious memories, please, please write in and let us know. All right, let's finish off the bat branding with the last physical page of the issue. It's Batgirl Cover Girl, which is pretty neat. Since her first appearance in 1966, Batgirl has appeared in many different DC magazines. Here are four cover shots of the Domino Daredevil. What's neat, they do have in different titles. So there's the one in Batman where she's facing off against the green-suited Catwoman. Detective Comics where she's revealing her identity. I think that's to her father, right? And that one, is that the issue where she reveals her identity to Commissioner Gordon. One where she guest starred in the Justice League during the heyday of the Batman 66, where they were spotlighting all the Bat characters. And here she is going to battle the Queen Bee, which is neat. And then great cover of her falling from the sky and Superman in his own title rushing up to catch her. She's like, no, don't save me, Superman. Save Metropolis instead. We talked about this, I don't know, a couple of issues ago where she guest starred in Superman a couple of times and we don't know if they were trying to create some chemistry there or whatever, but they were fun stories. Of the four covers, although she's in danger the most, my favorite one is the Superman. Yeah, that's a great cover. So anyway, that was a lot of fun. That was a page filler, but fun. All right, ready to move on to the third story? From Batgirl to Batgirl. So the next story is Batgirl's Last Case, starring Batgirl. Eight pages, written by Frank Robbins, drawn by Don Hepp. And it originally appeared in Detective Comics number 424 from 1972. Batgirl in Batgirl's Last Case. Uh, Think back to those troubled days of 1972. The last time we ever had to worry about crooked politicians with hypocritical views trying to rig an election so that they would unfairly win. (sighs) It's election eve, and as Batgirl makes like a gargoyle and overlooks the cityscape, her father, Commissioner Gordon, and Jason Bard discuss the possibility of her being elected to Congress. Also weighing in on that possibility are some gun-loving reprehensible criminal scum who plan to lie, cheat, and steal their way into a false win. The next morning, after Babs, who is wearing all green, how about that, Lizanne, <laughs> casts her vote, her campaign volunteers are working the phone bank to let people know how to get out and vote. However, after those kids reach out and touch someone via phone, the bad guys decide to reach out and threaten someone by talking to everyone who had promised to go out and vote for Gordon. Simply manipulating voter turnout isn't enough for these boys, who must be very proud of themselves. No, they decide to kill Babs, but first they'll have to get rid of her bodyguard, Jason Bard. They lure Jason to the Gotham Park Zoo. Rumor has it that they have a Kryptonian babooch on loan from the fortress, but Babs trails Jason, knowing that he wouldn't leave campaign headquarters so close to the results. BG and JB quickly subdue the inept thugs, 
and then race each other back to headquarters separately. Jason saves Babs from some absolutely horrendous feedback, as in preventing an exploding microphone from killing her, and then commiserates with Jim that they are both going to miss her as she flies to Gotham on Southwest Airlines, the same airline that Robin used to fly the Aztec Temple last issue. What did you think, Paul? I don't know. This is not my favorite story of the issue. Not a lot going on, right? Get the vote out by the kids. You mentioned it, another green outfit. Now Lizanne has me looking everywhere for it too. <laughs> Don Heck, uh, he's past his prime at this point. Not my favorite artist. I will have words, but go on. Yeah, the collar, which of course now I can never not see it when it's there. So it's educational, I guess, about how they would try to impede the voters. Still happens today, obviously, just different and more sophisticated. But overall, this is the story. I think they viewed this as an important story to present because this is the one where she gets elected to Congress and goes off to Washington, which is great. This is only a four-year-old story at this point. She's been in Congress for a while. She's down in Washington. In D.C. time, she, I think, only serves one term and comes back to Gotham. But for readers who might not have seen this story, it's a good backstory part. But it's a little on the unexciting side for me. I don't have a lot else to say about it, to be honest. How about you? What do you think? So I'm going to start off with the good things and then spend four hours about the bad things. (laughs) (laughs) I do love that it showed how Babs went to Congress. And I had never seen that before. So when I got this, it was a cool story. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love Jason Bard. In general, I love regular normal people who help superheroes. Yeah, he's a good character. Partially, it lets us think, oh, well, maybe I could help out. He's also a Vietnam vet, so that's mm-hmm. like a super cool angle. Yeah. Uh, the fact that he has the cane, like, I love that. His cane kind of reminds me of Steed's umbrella from The Avengers, the British TV show, and I love that. So those are the good things. <laughs> Cousins, we have to talk. I am not one to dwell on the negative or fixate on things I don't like, but this is the first instance of something that's going to be repeated oft through Batman family, and that is Don Heck. I really don't like Don Heck's art whatsoever. Understand, you've seen my drawing of Robin. You might have seen the horrible drawing I did of Aquaman. So I can't draw. So Don Heck is a better artist than I am. I'll say that absolutely completely. But in the realm of comic book artists, for me, the best way I can describe it, when I look at Don Heck's art, I just see flat cardboard people just like laid flat on a piece of paper yeah there's something to be said for that yeah and i know that he does a lot of artwork in batman family and i'm not going to be negative every single time for the longest time i was actually thinking well maybe it's a case of carmine infantino carmine infantino's art in the 50s flash oh my god i love that i could stare at that forever then when he came back in the 80s it wasn't really good like it was very loose it was very scratchy but he had that past that you could look at and understand. So I was thinking maybe it's the same case with Don Heck, but I'm also getting those new reprints of the mighty Marvel masterworks, which are slightly smaller than the masterworks. And Don Heck was the artist for the Avengers, yeah. kind of like when Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch were part of it. I mean, Kirby was only on that for maybe a dozen issues or so. I don't know exactly how many issues, but yeah, Don Heck was his successor. And he was a veteran then. Yeah. So if someone loves Don Heck's art, please let us know. You know, maybe you can give me an insight that I can appreciate it, hopefully. And again, he's 10,000% a better artist than I am. But when you compare him to Mike Grell Mm -hmm. from the first issue or Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise praise be his name, name. it does fall 
flat and fall short. Yeah, I mean, the way I look at Don Hick is, to me, he was always very stiff. You know, he was a stalwart artist. I think he was a dependable guy. DC did a lot of this in Marvel too. You know, there were a bunch of these artists who had been around for a number of years who, you know, the editors felt responsible to make sure that they could earn a living and gave them work. He was never among my favorites. You know, I always kind of viewed him as a less interesting version of Irv Novik. Irv Novik, I think he had a better sense of conveying people and the style, but he was also a little stiff and pointy. I'd be curious if some of our artists, listeners views on Don Heck. He's not my favorite either. I don't know that I have quite as much of a, of a negative, but I remember being disappointed back in the day where you get the Justice League and there's a George Perez cover and George yeah. Perez did the last issue. You open it up and it's Don Heck inside. Yeah, Man, that's a big difference. That doesn't endear you to him right at that time. Anyway, we're going to find our joy. We're not going to talk a lot about it. And actually, as I'm looking through, I can say he doesn't skimp on the backgrounds because there are artists that I like that the backgrounds aren't there. And here, when they're in the zoo, there's the fountain with the reflecting pool and the step. So there are backgrounds in there. So that's something I feel that, you know, is good because there are some great artists. Sometimes it does look more like a coloring page. When the kids are on the phones, he's drawing the phone, the paperwork, the tables, all of that. So there's that. So that's something that good that I can say about. Let's move on to the Bat Timeline. In this segment, we'll take a look at the other titles that DC published this month, and well as the other publishers. As always, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. These are titles on sale of August 1976. Sean, do you want to kick us off with the Bat books? Absolutely. We're going to start off with Batman number 281, which went on sale August 12th the day before my birthday. Mm. Uh, and that's number 281. And the title is Murder Comes in Black Boxes. There's a dynamic picture of Batman on the cover, two fisting criminals on either side of him. And that has to be really hard to knock out people on both sides. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Next up is Detective number 465, because there's no Brave and the Bold this month, unfortunately. The Detective 465, we get the calculator again. Started with the Atom, as we talked about last episode, and 463. Last issue in the off month was 464 with Black Canary. This month, the calculator goes up against Elongated Man. I think I mentioned last time that all these stories were written by our pal, Bob Rosakis. And oh, double by the way, Batman's in this issue too, and something called the best kept secret in Gotham City. But the star of the show is the calculator. And our next title is Justice League of America number 136. And it is Crisis on Earth S. Oh, how I love Earth S with the Marvel family, Captain Marvel, Mary Marvel, Captain Marvel Jr. But related to our Bat timeline, the Batman and Robin of Earth 2 are on the cover. Yeah, that's cool. Batman is pasting Joker right in the jaw. I think that's Earth 2 Joker too, isn't it? If I remember correctly. I think so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Robin is jumping right on to Shade. That's pretty cool. It's a great cover. I always liked when you could tell the Earth 2 Batman because he didn't have the yellow circle around the bat. Exactly right, yeah. Now, there is no World's Finest comic this month. But... There is goodness ahead because, as we talked about, it's Super Friends number one. Yay! And that does have the Super Friends, including Batman and Robin, bursting out of the TV screen. That's cool. It's got Wendy and Marvin, though, everybody, because this is the pre-Wonder Twins Super Friends. And they do go up against the Super Foes, and that is Penguin, Toy Man, Poison Ivy, Cheetah, and Human Flying Fish. Sean, you may be too modest, but I believe you were the guest on the premiere episode of For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast, where you reviewed that very issue, did you not, with our friend Rob Kelly? That is correct. And I'm not too modest because I was also going to talk about they took the idea of the super foes and the super friends and made it into a kid's book and rob and i also talked about that 
if you put Sean M. Myers into the search bar of fire and water, you will get both of my super friends' appearances talking about this beautiful, beautiful story. Awesome. And then last but not least, in the Bat-related books, we have a new entry as well. Another new entry, Teen Titans number 44, which is the return of the Teen Titans, written by Bob Rosakis, and got a cool cover with Dr. Light menacing the original Titans, Robin and Wonder Girl, and introducing Mal as a Teen Titan, which was great, bring a little diversity. So what else you got this month, Sean? Okay, for my newsstand picks, I am standing at Uffelman's newsstand, now that I know how to get there. Thank you, Dad. I didn't get all of these books back then real time, but we're taking the time machine and I am going to get Action Comics number 465. And that has Superman pasting Luther in the jaw. But on the inset, they're having a flashback to when they were fighting as teenagers. Yeah, that's cool. I think Luther de-ages Superman or something in that story. I had that on my list too. It's an excellent cover. And there's a backup story called Paper Hero with Steve Lombard. (laughs) (laughs) My next pick is, of course, All-Star Comics with the Super Squad. And that is uh, number 63, a huge Solomon Grundy. And he is attacking Power Girl, Hawkman, and Wildcat. He looks like he's 12 feet tall (laughs) in that cover. A little out of proportion. He looks like it's King Kong. (laughs) The Fiddler is in the background. Then my next one, I'm branching out to Marvel Comics. It's the Amazing Spider-Man. Has Spider-Man, the Punisher, and Nightcrawler on the cover. Now, at the time, I had no idea who Nightcrawler is, but now I definitely would get this issue. And that's Amazing Spider-Man number 162, Let the Punisher Fit the Crime. I'm with you because I think this storyline where the Nightcrawler guest starred in Spider-Man, I was buying Spider-Man, not the X-Men. This one would have been my first experience with Nightcrawler as well. And it's pretty cool image. This was still at the time when they were appropriately considering the Punisher a villain, (laughs) where he's menacing them and a group of hostages on the the ferry or one of those transom boats. It's an excellent cover by Ross Andrew. The next issue I'm going to get, we talked about, and that's Justice League. And then I'm also going to get... Marvel Tales number 73, which is a reprint from Amazing Spider-Man 92, and that has Iceman in it. So this month, I'm getting Nightcrawler and Iceman with Spider-Man. Nice. My next one, I did not have at the time. I do not have now, but I would love to have it now. And that is a really for real treasury. It is not a limited collector's edition. (laughs) It is a treasury, and it is Marvel Treasury Edition number 11. And I don't have to tell anybody who that stars. So I'm going to go into the next one. No, 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 no. I'm not that mean. It is the fabulous Fantastic Four. There is a great cover of a huge Doctor Doom, and he is attacking Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Woman, Thing, and Human Torch. The stories are The Master Plan of Doctor Doom, Submariner, The Return of the Frightful Four, and This Man, This Monster. That last story is probably my favorite Fantastic Four story of all time. I I think that's a masterpiece right on the heels of the Galactus Silver Surfer. You know, talking about reading omnibuses, you just read that omnibus number two. Stanley and Jack Kirby is some of the best comics ever written. That's a great story, This Man, This Monster. So good choice. My next book is The Secret Society of Supervillains, (laughs) number four. Let me tell you, on Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it lists all of the characters that feature in the story. I am not going to read that because our episodes are long enough with me falling <laughs> on about stuff that's not Batman family. So it would take me four hours to read all of those characters, but it's a great one. Yeah, 10 feature characters plus a guest star of Green Lantern. That's amazing. <laughs> My next issue is Shazam number 26. Oh, how I love Shazam. And this is when he was doing his tour across America. And he's fighting a dinosaur. How can you not like that? He is going to show up in the next dress 
Jurassic World movie. <laughs> the next one, of course, is Super Friends. How can I not get Super Friends number one? We talked about that. The next one, you'll have to indulge me for a little bit because it is Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 221. And holy moly, the villain this issue is Grimbor. And Grimbor, um, mm-hmm. His, <laughs> his outfit, mm-hmm. I pray for the day. I'm at Baltimore Comic Con and I see someone cosplaying Grimbor and Tyrock. And before we get rated an explicit rating, we will move on to Superman Family number 180. I love my family comics, Batman Family, Superman Family. The new story, this issue, is Supergirl in the Secret of the Spellbound Supergirl. And the reprints are The Nine Lives of Jimmy Olsen and The Girl That Almost Married Clark Kent. And this cover is fantastic. Oh, it's a great cover. It is a statue of Supergirl who is losing her head because Supergirl herself is punching her head off. Yeah, that's a Rich Buckler cover. Uh, I had this one on my list. I think if we have an extra 10 years or so, when Batman Family Reunion is done, maybe we'll do Superman Family Ties. Yeah, I have nearly every dollar comic issue of that, and I want to go back and get... They're not very expensive. The moment that it went from Jimmy Olsen to Superman Family, that's when I'd like to get on and then get all of those issues. I was missing only a few, and a few years ago I went and I picked them up all like $5, you know, they're not expensive. And the last issue I'm going to buy is Teen Titans number 44, which we talked about. And amazingly, all of those books that I'm going to buy are a perfect $5. Wow. So I don't have done. any money for candy. All right. My books that you didn't mention, I've got Adventure Comics number 448. Yeah. It's got a book length Aquaman story by Lovitz and Aparo. And it's part of the Death of Aqua Baby story, which is coming up another few issues, I believe. I went with Avengers Annual number six. I have a few giant size issues this time. I broke the bank again this month. <laughs> this Avengers Annual has a great cover yeah. by Jack Kirby. And the villains are Nuclo and the Living Laser. I'm still waiting for those two in the MCU, but you've got this cover with this giant yellow monster menacing the Avengers. It's pretty tough to uh, avoid that one. I thought I'd go off the board a little bit from my regular stuff and get Beep Beep the Roadrunner number 60 on a flyer. It's kind of cute looking cover with Roadrunner and two little Roadrunners being chased by the coyote in the rain. <laughs> Did the Roadrunner have kids? I didn't realize that. The little brother and sister. I don't know much about that, but I thought that looked fun. I am surprised you didn't pick Fantastic Four, number 176, with The Impossible Man. Great stuff. Also with George Perez art. I always liked him. That might have been my first exposure to him. I can't remember because he was at the very beginning of the Fantastic Four and then he came back, you know, 100 issues later. I can't remember if I'd seen him before this. I do like The Impossible Man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's cool. Flash 245, Irv yeah. Novak art. And a Green yeah. Lantern backup, which is terrific. It's got a pretty exciting cover. The Freedom Fighters, number five. Again, surprised you didn't pick that one. Got guest stars Wonder Woman. I ran up my $5 all right, all right, Fantastic all right. Four Treasury, and I don't regret it. Another Rich Buckler cover with Uncle Sam carrying Wonder Woman, yeah. talking about her sacrifice. And inside, you got Ramona Fredenart in there Ooh. as well. Next up, I have Invaders, number 10. But I got tomahawked on this one, Sean. <laughs> They got hit by the dreaded Deadline Doom. There's a three-page framing sequence around the 1943 Captain America reprint. Wah, wah, wah. 
And then the last one I'll talk about, because I had Superman Family, was Marvel 2-in-1, number 21, The Thing and Doc Savage. Again, loved 2-in-1, team up all those comics. I would not have heard of Doc Savage at this time, so this might have been my first exposure to him. He's been published by various comic companies over the years. That's kind of neat. It's a pretty exciting cover as well. Thing and Doc Savage sort of bursting through a wall, coming right at us. Cool cover by Ron Wilson and Joe Sinat. Oh, by the way, there's just a mere 10 Richie Rich titles. Oh, you got to print it out. <laughs> you counted 10 as well. <laughs> That's funny. I was going to bring that up as well. I was listening to Rob's last episode of Mountain Comics, I think it was, where they were talking about the number of Richie Rich comics as well, which is absolutely incredible when you think about it. More than Batman, more than Superman. Unbelievable. Richie Rich. Oh, so that was fun. All right. I think we are done. Unfortunately, yet again, we have no fourth story. We're shrinking the number of stories before we expand the number of stories again when we get to the dollar comics. So hang on to your hats when we get there. I guess now we'll just play a couple of podcast promos. And when we return, we will read your listener feedback. Water Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's for all mankind, a super friends podcast, a read-through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run plus a few surprises. Hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my super friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Give Me That Star Trek. A new episode every month, only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. Welcome back. Now we will read and respond to your listener feedback for Episode 7, Fencing, Broken Trophies, and Sean's First Comic Book. First up, we've got Network All-Star and Pinball Wizard Rob (laughs) Flash Kelly, who stops by the reunion to say, Great show as always, fellas. I wish I could remember my first comic book, but they were always around, so that piece of personal history is lost to the ages. I love Bruce putting his feet up on the final panel of the first story, as if Alfred doesn't have to wipe the table down once he's done. I always thought Dr. Double X was a neat character with a tragically goofy costume. We've got a lot of comments on the costume, Dr. Double X, in these comments here. Anyway, he's got a tragically goofy costume. Red and yellow color schemes should be reserved for flame-centric characters only. Otherwise, it just reads to me as a hot dog with mustard on it. <laughs> Regarding the first issue packs, I would go with set A. You get demon number one and the shadow number one. Can't beat it. Both classics, Rob. And finally, Rob adds, my video store had those marble tapes. I never understood how licensed material like this looks so shoddy. Marvel was usually a lot sharper when it came to their merch. (laughs) Amen, Rob. Rob McCarthy, otherwise known as Arthur Fleck, comes by with some responses and questions. Hey, guys, I think that Teen Wonder was because he was Boy Wonder for so long. Number two. Wait, 
How often was Adam in Detective? I've been thinking that once they should have moved Adam to Hudson for Robin team-ups. You know, that's a great idea, Rob. I would have loved to see that. You would have, instead of Ivy University, Adam would be at Hudson. And that's a cool idea. I wish they had done that. So Adam only appeared in 14 issues of Detective where he teamed up with various DC heroes across the DC universe to try to find out who murdered Thomas and Martha Wayne. Oh, no, 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 no that's wrong. He only appeared once. <laughs> and it's like a four-page story. It's like a throwaway thing. Rob McCarthy continues. Number three, all due respect, Kurt Swan is awesome. Chuck Letta piped in to agree. He exclaimed that Kurt Swan was the definitive Superman artist. I'm sure Chris Franklin would agree. Rob says, number four, Remember the Brave and the Bold two-parter with Adam? It had Joker and Two-Face sleeping in the same tent. And I'm saying that they must have had too much of Aunt Mabel's special birch beer. Yeah, we don't know what a Joker and Two-Face were doing there, but it's good for them. Rob McCarthy says, number five, Joker can look just like Batman by wearing a costume. <laughs> and in answer to Martin Gray's question from last month as to who else beside the Mad Hatter uses a hot air balloon, Rob says, Nocturna used a hot air balloon. That's right, Rob, and listen to Martin's comments later on. And finally, and most importantly, Rob answers the question we wanted to know. Worry not, I'm here after the Joker series. I want to know why the demon is in Batman family. <laughs> Excellent. Glad to hear that, Rob. Next up, Noah Tarno makes his first appearance at the reunion to add, nicely done, gentlemen. I couldn't possibly determine what my first comic book was. I'm quite sure my parents and other relatives bought them for me before I could read, but some possibilities are... Number one, the DC special series issue focusing on the secret society of supervillains. I remember being freaked out by Grodd and fascinated with Green Lantern creating a giant green version of himself. Boy, anytime your first comic book has a secret society of supervillains in it, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're still with us, Noah. Number two, the JLA issue in which Mr. Terrific was killed, a classic. And three, some issue of Firestorm's very first series. Seeing someone with their head on fire had a powerful effect on very young me. Noah, those are all excellent choices. I love every single one of those issues. And Firestorm is one of my favorite superheroes. He goes on. I've always loved the concept of a Mr. and Mrs. Menace. The sportsmaster and Huntress is a married couple. Back in the 80s Infinity Inc. series, it was a no-brainer to add a child's of there, Tigress number two, otherwise known as Artemis. And I'm glad that character has persisted. But I found myself wanting some behind-the-scenes stories about the couple. How did they first hook up? Were they fooling around in the old IS headquarters? What was their wedding like? Etc. So actually, this story made me a little sad since it seems to indicate that they don't have the happiest of marriages. The Starman series would have been a good place for that. There's a moment when Shade encounters Alan Scott and tells him Sportsmaster used to call him the Green Latrine. I like imagining that Shane could barely stand any member of the Injustice Society with the exception of Sportsmaster, whom he thought was funny. <laughs> Dr. Double X is a thoroughly ridiculous character, like many, many other sci-fi flavored bat villains of the 1950s. So I find myself wondering why this guy has stuck around more or less to the present making it into the new 52 and multiple animated series and movies. A little Mike's Amazing World research tells me the blame belongs to Mike W. Barr, who for whatever reason brought him back in the early 80s in both World's Finest and The Brave and the Bold, where he formed a loser villain dream team with a mighty rainbow raider. Must be that sexy, sexy costume. This is Sean, I have two things. So yes, I unabashedly love bare legs on men, especially with the strappy sandal. I think that's very, <laughs> very fantastic. I love that. And kind of what he was saying about Mike W. Barr, I think all of us have characters that we love from childhood that probably are quote unquote loser characters. It's funny that he mentions Rainbow Raider 
because he was one of the first villains when I first started subscribing to The Flash. And I love Rainbow Ray, Roy G. Bivolo. Oh my God, I absolutely love <laughs> I that. I love his name. <laughs> and I think when you're introduced to characters like that when you're a kid, I mean, they're not losers. You know, you have an affection for them. And so I think that maybe that's part of the reason why. It's like me and the calculator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next up, back cousin Chris Franklin says, great episode so far, fellas, as I'm still listening. Just chiming in to say that these logos were used outside of Batman family, especially Robin's. It was part of the famous 1982 DC style guide with art by JLGL, PBHN. I remember having an awesome Delta kite that had JLGL art of Batman and Robin on each of its wings. And Batman had the logo of the Batman title from the mid 70s through the mid 80s. And Robin had this one. Most importantly, it was the logo used on the front and back of Robin's Superpowers Collection packaging by Kenner, definitive to say the least. The logo still cropped up in the Batmania of 1989 on a few items. I seem to recall it being used in Robin backups here and there, as well as mostly in Batman's title, before Dick gave way to Jason. Sometimes the old bat-shaped logo from all the way back to Star Spangled Comics was used. Yeah, I just want to let you all know, Bat Cousins, Chris put his money where his mouth is. He sent us a picture of the Superpowers Robin with that logo straight from the JLU cave, included it in the gallery post. In addition, silly me, I later realized I actually own a Robin Tune Tumbler where you turn it around and that logo's right on the glass. So I've used that glass all the time. <laughs> now I'm going to have to get yet another Tune Tumbler for my collection. <laughs> Chris returns later to add, back with more comments. I will always appreciate Sheldon Mordorf's work on Batman, but Dick Sprang is in a class by himself. Any Batman story he drew, and he mostly drew stories with Batman, plus a handful of Superman family titles, is worth marveling at on a panel by panel, sounds familiar, level. His characters are so full of life and movement and his cinematography is often overlooked. Sean, our local downtown video store had all of those Marvel videotapes. Yes, the covers were just baffling. A Fantastic Four video with Sue and Crystal on the cover. <laughs> Hulk getting punched out on his own video cover. Sandman is actually that weird Sandman-Hydroman hybrid. Was someone at DC providing this company <laughs> Marvel artwork to make them look bad? When that store went out of business, I was hoping to buy those, but someone got to them before me. And I loved Mr. Bones candy. I still have one of those coffins in my monster display. Awesome. Captain Entropy stops by the reunion to add, in my headcanon, Chris, your whole house becomes a monster display during <laughs> the house. Of Frankenstein. <laughs> then Network All-Star Siskoid stops by with some wisdom from his blog about Dr. Double X. He says, I wrote this about Dr. Double X, and he provides a link to this who's who entry and a description of Dr. Double X. And so check out the link in the comments if you want to read what Siskoid has to say. He finishes up by saying, as to whether he's less as or more goofy than the signal man, I can't be sure. So far in my 54 years on Earth, nothing is less than Signal Man. But I think for purposes of the Batman Family Reunion rating, Signal Man is going to be our standard for the rest of the show. We'll see if anybody can eclipse him. Next up, Brett Michael Young says, Hi, Bat Cousins. Sorry I'm late. I brought some potato salad that I will place on the corner of the picnic table directly in the sun. <laughs> and of course, some more Turkey Hill iced tea. Regarding your Turkey Hill question from the last reunion, I grew up in Lancaster, PA, which is where I grew, up, grew accustomed to Turkey Hill products. 
I've lived in the DC metro area for the last 20 years, and a lot of the local grocery stores carry both Turkey Hill teas and ice cream. So I'm never that far from home. Hey, I agree with you, Brett. As I mentioned during the episode, I love Turkey Hill chocolate, chocolate chip ice cream. We get those same things here in New Jersey. I was at the grocery store this morning. I looked for my raspberry swirl ice cream and they do not Oh, well, they may be changing some labels because when I found out for a couple of months, we were unable to get the chocolate chocolate chip, but my wife found some this time and it has a new label. Ooh, there's hope for me yet. Some Turkey Hill wisdom for all you guys out there. And that'll do it for our Turkey Hill podcast. (laughs) Next month, (laughs) Brett Michael Young continues with, not a bad issue. I always liked the Batgirl Robin team-ups. They always had a lighter tone and a fun, will they, won't they vibe. I love the F you money, Bruce Wayne, chilling out in a smoking jacket and ascot all day. They say the best revenge is living well, and Bruce is being his best, I am vengeance, right here. (laughs) The only other remark I'd make about this story is Batgirl's motorcycle isn't exactly what you'd call aerodynamic. I know branding is important, but Babs should talk to her mechanic and PR person about having a flat, wide bat on the front of her bike. (laughs) <laughs> Keep up the great work, cousins, and watch out for great Aunt Ethel. She's about three seven year monks deep and is getting a little handsy. Uh-oh. Time for our resident bat fashion critic, Lizanne Oswald, who makes her appearance at the reunion. Impressive podcast, most impressive. I just got over COVID, but I don't have it in my system anymore, so I should be okay. Glad to hear you're okay, Lizanne. Don't mess around yeah. with COVID, bat cousins. We all want you around for many more reunions to come. Lizanne goes on. Interesting that this issue has Tigress, uh, Huntress. No, not that one. That is a decent enough teen up. This has to be the weirdest double date ever. <laughs> and as soon as you say double date and you're talking about DC Comics, I think of JLU with the episode for Double Day with Green Arrow and Black Canary and Question and Huntress. Uh, that is a fantastic episode of that. Funny enough, also has Huntress in it, but a different one, not that one. <laughs> And not to throw shade on how the Huntress is outfitted, but Animal Prince never did it for me. Not something I would wear. Well, at least it wasn't green, Lizanne. <laughs> Moving along, the double X story was fine. The red and yellow, was he supposed to be the red rooster version of Hulk Hogan? Long sleeve shirt with shorts. This look only works if you're a gymnast or a pro, pro bike rider. Then again with the ballet shoes, complete with the two X's on his chest. Maybe he just got off work from his second job after leaving a bachelorette party. <laughs> but that's usually Sean's gig, Lizanne. I don't know. Future guest and our bat relative from across the Atlantic, Martin Gray, commented, Hiya, bat brothers. Cheers for tickling my Twinkies once more. And with the second issue I ever bought. The first was issue two, but this was better, despite being so thin. Because this one had Mr. and Mrs. Menace, Huntress and the Sportsmaster, star of TV's Stargirl. I love them. The bickering is so much fun and reached another level a couple of months later in the legendary DC Superstars number 10 with the superheroes versus supervillains baseball game. I had no blooming interest in the US version of Rounders, but it was more Bob Rosakis brilliant with the fantastic Dick Dillon and Frank McGaughlin art. If we can have a Batman family reunion Teen Titans Joker's Daughter special, why not cover this great comic? Okay, it's sport but it'll have a Twinkies ad in there somewhere. <laughs> That's a great idea, Martin. Maybe we will do a special FW Presents. It's on. We got a list of these kind of things, so hang in there. Well done on pointing out Sportsmaster's ever-changing wardrobe. Sometimes he even altered outfits between panels in the same scene, as in page nine. He's best in short shorts, obviously. <laughs> this is Sean interrupting. I agree, Martin. <laughs> Back to Martin. I did laugh that even Dick gives himself second billing, referring to Becker and Robin. Poor kid. 
Speaking of which, you never mentioned that moment in which he points out just how much older Babs is. Seven years, he reckons. Barbara Gordon is MILF girl. <laughs> and how about that fabulous panel which declares Dick Grayson is an extraordinary person with the agility and speed of a boy and the strength and cleverness of a man <laughs> and the legs of a lady shave model. Great fun. But the frame of the issue has to be the one at the bottom of page eight. Did DC omit page numbers this time because of the reduced page count? Explaining Sportsmaster's MO. Silly hat, giant fish spinning tennis balls, dungarees? Kurt Swan is having such a good time. I'm going to interrupt just for a moment to join in. Martin, I never thought about that, but I actually think you are 100% right that DC got rid of the page numbers for stories and for, for the issues because they went down. That makes complete sense. I hadn't thought of that either. That was a good comment. I hate it, but it makes complete sense for that. Back to Martin. I take your point that Uncle Crusher and Auntie Paula should have been able to at least drop a rope into the vault to get at that gem. But wait a sec. A guy whose whole deal is using sporting kit hasn't the athletic ability to get down a silly old tomb? Congratulations to whoever sorted out that splash page of the Dr. Double X story. Finally, a new logo and title that looks decent. As for the villain of the issue, I'm down with the helmet fin and the bare legs. They were later covered up by yellow tights. The trophy tail was okay, but it was just Batman and Robin. If a story doesn't spotlight a supporting character, it is no business being here. You know, that's a good point, Sean. I hadn't thought of that, but they might have just found one that fit the page count. I certainly understand what Martin says. And yeah, it makes sense. And I understand Robin is in the story, but he was in like all of it. He was in every story back then, right? But I do really love that story. And I don't think I would have read it otherwise. So Martin, you are a thousand percent correct. But in this case, I'll allow it because I love that story. <laughs> Martin then goes on to say, I wouldn't have bothered with any of the comic packs because they all had stuff in I didn't fancy. The most appealing, if pushed, is the one with the classic plop, number one. To answer your ice cream question, we actually have superb ices in Scotland because of all the Italian families that moved here and opened cafes and gelato factories. But my fave is cheap Mr. Whippy, dripping with monkey's blood. And we'll get to another ice cream comment from Martin in a little bit. And now back to Martin. As for my own question, well done to Rob McCarthy. It was indeed Bronze Age villain Nocturna, Jason Todd's spooky stepmom, who traveled to crimes in a balloon. What a treat to have a contribution from Bob Rosakis. You know, he answered two of my questions in his fabulous Daily Planet column. That's really cool, Martin. I didn't know that. Uh, maybe when you guest on the show, you can tell us that story. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I can't wait for that. So our final commenter, Mark Baker Wright, says... Unlike some of the others, I'm fairly certain that the first comic book I bought myself, as specifically opposed to comic books I read but which belonged to others, was Transformers number 8, which ostensibly introduced the Dinobots, although technically they had already appeared in flashbacks several issues earlier. I never did do a podcast devoted to this series, but only because the folks at Transformers Chronicles colon the Marvel years were already doing such, and I wanted to try something that was a bit less likely to be well-trod ground. Thus, I did Not Your Father's Autobot, a Transformers Generation 2 comic book podcast, which recently finished covering all 12 issues of that series, plus the several issues of G.I. Joe that served to reintroduce the Transformers after an absence of a few years. You should be able to find it via my blog if interested. Go out and check that out, uh, listeners, from Mark Baker Wright. He finishes up by saying Dr. X and Dr. Double X should have seen through Batman's phosphorus disguise immediately. It's not like Batman thought to put a double bat emblem on his chest the way a double X did with his emblem. No wonder they were defeated so quickly. You are right, Mark. He should have been 
double Batman X. <laughs> now, we're going to acknowledge our Bat family members who shared our podcast on social media. We appreciate the support from our online community. Sean, before you get to Facebook and Twitter, we actually have two Apple iTunes reviews. If you look on Apple iTunes and the Batman Family Reunion, the history of the Nightcast show is still on there. But the reviews from 2022 are for us. So they're from February 7th from Triv Triv. More excellence from the Fire and Water Network. He says, just what I've come to expect from the Fire and Water Network. Middle-aged comics geeks exploring superhero <laughs> nostalgia thoughtfully. Well, thank you. And with laugh out loud humor and zero toxic fanboy nonsense. Highly recommended for anyone who likes Batman or comics. Well, thank you, Triv Triv. We appreciate that. Thanks a lot. And Bucky749 says, holy awesome Batman. Enjoying the show. The hosts do a wonderful job. Can't wait till the demon shows up. I didn't know he was part of the Batman family. <laughs> well, stay tuned, Bucky749. Thanks, Buck. Now, we're going to go to Facebook likes, but I have to admit, our first Facebook like is the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And I can't help but think that was me not realizing I was logged in under <laughs> the network. So I think that's supposed to be Sean Myers instead of the fire. Because Paul is listed as like, but I didn't like this. And that's really unlike me. So I think that was my mistake. We still like you. But the people who know how to use Facebook are Ruth Sutherland, Brian Linton, Dan Jackson, Herschel Mimas, Mike Thomas, and Clinton Robinson. And we're going to go over to Twitter. And Twitter, we're going to start with our bosses first. So Treasury Comics, Digest Cast, Superman Movement, Mountain Comics for All Mankind SF, Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, and Irredeemable Shag all liked it. So thank you, guys. We appreciate that. And now on to the most important people, the listeners, our bat cousins. Lynn Ann Oswald, Mike Deans, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Ed Moore, Siskoid, Chris Lydon, it's Jason, Tim Price, the pod crasher, Doc Strange, Coffee and Comics, Michael Thomas, The Bat Pod, Jim Ball, B-A-L, Dr. Pop Culture, BGSU, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Fan Film Fridays Podcast, Days of High Adventure Podcast, Ward Hill Terry, and Justin Steiner. And before we go, I want to make mention of Martin's comment on my comment to him. He was on vacation and had double nougat, which is apparently a thing for Scottish ice cream fans, and sent a pic. And he said, and Batman family doubted we even had ice cream in Scotland. <laughs> to which I replied, I'll have a scoop of the bangers and mash flavored ice cream, please. <laughs> And Martin sent a fantastic picture, so I encourage you to go over to Twitter and take a look at that because it's well worth the login. <laughs> Before we sign off, as most of our listeners know, running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you're enjoying what you hear on the show or any of the other shows on the network, please consider becoming a patron. We are not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount that you can give helps defray the cost and... I promise that none of the Patreon money will go towards paying off my bar tab at the Kit Kat Club. <laughs> to find out how, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts and thanks. So that'll do it for the feedback section for episode seven and for episode eight overall. Thanks for listening. And we hope you will join us next month where we will have a special guest, cousin Dan Greenfield of the 13th Dimension. See you then. Thanks a lot. 